service of Stefan Ozic. Hello everybody, welcome back to the podcast. What a opportunity and what a pleasure to be bringing to you another insightful conversation. This episode is featuring none other than the Brad Smeal. I probably got that wrong, so I'm sorry about that, Brad. I've been practicing, so bear with me. You're going to learn how to recite his name by the end of the conversation, folks. So take your time and enjoy the conversation. Uh, this episode was yeah, quite a heavy conversation. I must admit there was moments where I nearly choked up. Uh, and this happened in the last episode with Sam Harvey. We got deep and we got dark, for lack of a better word. It was necessary, and where the arc of the conversation took us, it happened to lead us down that pathway, and it was extremely necessary, and I can only commend and thank Brad for his immense honesty and his vulnerability and his ability and willingness to share so coherently and fluidly his experience and what he's had to go through. Expect to learn about his process of healing and his journey from professional wakeboarder to quadriplegic. Who was Brad? Ultimately, he's a ex-pro wakeboarder and he unfortunately had an accident and he is now quadriplegic from the neck down. He is also an author who wrote a amazing, amazing autobiography explaining and sharing his journey and where he's gone and how he's moved forward and where he's heading in his life. This conversation happened to bring up a lot that I think you, the listener, will take and be able to implement into your everyday life. It is something that is extremely necessary in this climate that we are living in, in this state of mind that we are living in collectively. And I felt this conversation came at a perfect time. So once again, Brad, I thank you and I commend you and I am happy to call you now a friend. So to all those listening, if you're feeling that you wish to support the podcast in any way, shape or form, the best way you can do that is by liking, subscribing and commenting via Spotify and via iTunes, um, Apple Podcasts. And you can also share this on Facebook and the YouTube video will be coming up. So if you want to share that, by all means, the more the merrier. And yeah, I just want to continue to get these amazing conversations out because I'm striving effortlessly to get the most compelling and most engaging and the most people that are living lives of immense deep intention. And it's something that I myself can learn from and hopefully you can learn from and implement it into your life. So I thank you for taking the time and love you all. Speak soon. Well, thank you so much, Brad, for doing this. Really appreciate it. Uh, taking the time of this day on this beautiful Auckland day. Let's hope it stays and keeps this way. It's usually for the overseas listeners, Auckland's weather never is consistent, but so far it's holding up clear blue skies. Sun is shining. Yep. Summer's coming. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Well, first of all, how are you, Brad? How's it going? Um, it's going all right. It's funny. Lately, I've been able to. I've, when people ask me how I am, I kind of feel like I have to say, 
aside from a lot of the pain issues and, and health stuff that I've been going through recently, uh, which kind of feels like I'm just dragging an anchor behind me. But aside from that, everything's great. Like, you know, I've got um, a lot of positive stuff going on in my life. I'm really happy with, um, you know, getting back into working and actually, you know, I've kind of got my first real job, um, which I never thought would happen. Um, and yeah, you know, new house, like beautiful place to live and, you know, just feel very blessed and in a lot of ways, but, um, yeah, it's just a shame that there's these pain issues going on that, um, we're struggling to get to the bottom of. It's been two and a half years, uh, surgeries and bunch of stuff there. So it's, uh, yeah, it's been a bit of a struggle, but like, um, I think that's where I'm grateful for some of the challenges that I have been through in the past has given me some of the tools to be able to, you know, work through, um, some adversity and, and through some of the struggles and be able to, I don't know, like I, I feel like just being able to box, put things into kind of boxes where they kind of belong um, within my own um, self, like, you know, whether it's um, being able to separate like things like that, you know, when even just when being us, it's like, okay, yeah, I can, I can separate the pain issues and go, well, life's actually really good aside from that, you know, and it's kind of like, yeah, it's it's just been nice to be able to kind of build some of that resilience and um, and be in a situation where I can feel like I can sort of overcome pretty much anything. The eternal optimist, and it does again. It just it goes back into your book title. You know, you've been faced with constant adversity, and then this other degree of adversity, which hey, many people even just not not only the accident, but just that constant pain in itself would break many people. So that in itself is already just you encapsulating that whole message, you know, of owning it. With 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 the pain, is it like a global pain? Um, so for the, since since the accident happened, I've ended up with uh, neuropathic pain. So it's like like pins and needles throughout my whole body, but it's quite like oh. a bit more uncomfortable, but more painful than pins and needles or what I remember that to be um and so that's that's been ongoing for for you know since the accident but in the last few years uh it was about quarter of the way through 2021 and uh I just you know was feeling uncomfortable sitting in my chair I get this response called autonomic dysreflexia which is where my body basically if I'm my body feels something is wrong below my level of injury and it's generally related to bowel, bladder or skin. So say my catheter might be blocked and my bladder is overfilling and kind of backing up into the kidneys, it shoots my blood pressure up and it kind of gives me the sweats and if it gets bad it gets, gives, gives me a real pounding headache and my blood pressure would keep going up and up and up until it would you know, potentially give me a um, brain aneurysm or a stroke or something like that and it's... Uh, so it's, it's very dangerous, but it's also, it's it's nice that my body sends me a signal to say, hey, something's wrong, mm. time to look into it and figure out, you know, what it is. So, and generally, it's pretty easy to unblock the catheter okay. or to fix it. But um, yeah, even just sitting in my wheelchair, I was getting this like slight sweat going on, which my body doesn't sweat when I'm hot, so I don't have thermoregulation, it's part of the injury. 
Um, so I don't sweat when I'm hot. I don't get goosebumps when I'm cold. So it's really hard to um, regulate my temperature. And so this mild sweat was just kind of annoying. Like I'm going through winter trying to stay warm and I'm sweating. And so I'm just getting cold like the whole time. And then we investigated it. Like we're digging into it with the doctors. Everything like MRIs, x-rays, ultrasounds, CTs, um, what are they called, colonoscopies, all that sort of stuff. I even did a pill cam endoscopy where you swallow a pill oh, that has wow. a camera in it and takes photos the whole way down and they found nothing. And it wasn't until the start of 2022 that I was like, all right guys, I, I can't even sit in my chair anymore. It's just too painful. Um, and so I basically became the real squeaky wheel um, saw the colorectal mm. specialist and, mm. and he ended up investigating a bit more and we um, discovered I had uh, what's called a perianal fistula. So like in the lower bowel. Um, sure, I and again, and this is getting into, you know, like stuff that I've become very comfortable talking yeah. about, like bowel, bladder, you know, yeah. all that sort of stuff. I don't Owning really that. care. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so the how they think it happens is you end up with what's called a fissure tear, which is just kind of like a little rip on your um, on your butthole, uh, which is unpleasant for anyone, you know, and it can happen just from sitting on the toilet too long or, yeah, you know, so things like that. Um, and then if that doesn't heal properly, you end up with like this little bit of a pocket of infection and then that infection burrows through the flesh, like through the skin or not the skin, but internally and creates a new like kind of narrow passageway, I guess. So I ended up with four of these kind of things branching off from my lower bowel, and um, and it just yeah it, it it doesn't sort itself out. So they had to go in. Um, so it was March. So I, I was basically on bed rest from that point, the start of the year. Um, and then March I had my first, or April I had my first surgery to try to drain them. Se- uh, second surgery was in July. Uh, to try and drain them again because two of them drained, two of them didn't. And that's when they um, basically put me on a colostomy bag, mm. which was something I, man, I, I wanted to avoid mm. at all costs. But, um, you know, it has been a bit of a blessing in disguise. It means I don't have to go through the rigorous bowel r- care routine to try and move my bowels every morning, which was really problematic for me. It was mm. taking several hours. It was like, uh, really um, rough on my body and and that's what led to these issues um, so then third surgery was October basically I was on bed rest for three quarters of last year and then had another surgery this year and so it's it's things are have improved are improving yeah. like I'm sitting in my chair I can get out and do some yeah. things so things are definitely getting better but there's just been a lot of discomfort in my lower abdomen and and people find that strange because they're like, oh, you broke your neck, you're paralyzed, like you shouldn't be able to feel anything. That's what I was going to ask. So mm. is that like kind of a good thing that your your body's been able to process that? I mean, pain? I like to see it that way. Even from day yeah. one uh, when I was feeling nerve pains and I was like, I, I just was like, okay, I've still got some sort of connection with my body. Like it wasn't a complete sever. Uh, my spinal cord was just crushed severely. But... Um, like little things that like if I try to wiggle my toes everything inside my legs feels like it should be Whoa, working that's crazy but 
the, the, the toes just the little piggies just don't w- wiggle you know they don't want to go to the market and um so uh there is connection there and the unfortunate thing is that pretty much all i feel is internal feeling and it's generally mm. pain um so you know at the very beginning i was like okay well i'd rather feel a little bit of pain than nothing at all because um, it means there's possibility of mm. you know things getting better after nine years i'm like eh, maybe not so much anymore like it's kind of chipping away at me but um i don't know it's just kind of become normal and become part of mm. part of life now so if i can get this other stuff sorted so these last few years have just been a bit extra rough so mm. if i can get that sorted then um yeah i'd be be more than happy to just live with the nerve pains again and mm. um you know, I'm on meds and things like that to help out. But yeah. Mm, it um, certainly is, I, I think I was a bit naive and I, and people don't quite understand the full extent of a spinal cord injury. Mm. Uh, for most people, it's like, okay, you can't move, you can't walk or whatever. Um, but, you know, the nerve pains, the uh, lack of bowel and bladder function, um, sexual function, um blood pressure issues you know as i was saying autonomic dysreflexia can push my blood pressure up and potentially you know be really dangerous and uh also my blood pressure can drop quite rapidly so i'm on blood pressure meds to support um support that but yeah it's uh (laughs) there's a lot more to it and and the mental battle on top of that that's Mm. just another whole another whole um kettle of fish but because yeah. don't don't know really really any other way of saying it, but in a way you're kind of like a pioneer man because you're going to what for one what your your accident, um, but two for you to be going through this constant uh, need for endurance of pain, mental pain, and now here you are relaying it and sharing it with the world. I think in a way it's like you're going to, you're having to go to these unknown compartments in your mind alone. I imagine how much, and this is what I really want to get into, how much of this whole process for you is mental. And um, kind of going back into the um, ICU portion, I remember it's kind of going to segue in a bit, but there's that moment in the book where I, I kind of laughed out loud where the nurse put ice ice on your balls and you're like, what the fuck? Like, get it off, get it yeah. off. And that's the one and only time that that's actually triggered a, a wow. feeling like because we've had occasions. So the, the reason they did that, like I was, I had pneumonia, um, my, my uh, ending up with fevers and things like that. So, um, you know, there were times they had to try to cool me down quite rapidly and, and the armpits and the groin are the places that really cool you down the fastest. So they, yeah, they did that and I was like, oh, Jesus, like, was not expecting that. Um, but yeah, it was a weird one. I mean, that was very, very early on, so I don't know why, like, I felt it then, but I, you know, probably wouldn't feel it now. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, that was a... A very um, challenging experience, to say the yeah. least. That that ICU thing, the mental yeah. stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, especially in the early days, it's about just you, you can't stop focusing on everything that you've lost and everything you can't do anymore. And you just you're your own worst enemy. You're sitting there just like, you know, pretty much um, 
can't think of the word, but you're just yeah against yourself, going you know you're you're, you're worthless. Like why did you do this? You fucked your whole life up. Mm-hmm. Like you know, and then it even got to the point because you know I did this to push the limits of wakeboarding to try and make yeah. to try and make it um, in a sport that I wasn't quite making it in yet. Like I was doing well, but I wasn't getting paid and um, or at least not enough to survive off and. So I was like, this is, you know, I need to make th- something happen. Mm. And we're filming a movie and I'm like, fuck, I like, I fucked my life up for a stupid movie. For like, you know, which really, at the time, it meant so much to me to That's land that trick for the for the film. But then afterwards when I'd hurt myself, I'm like, that just, that meant nothing in the grand scheme of things. That movie was just, you know, for, for what I've done to myself and, and for a sport, like it was just... Yeah, I was just constantly attacking myself in yeah. my mind and it was just brutal. Um so yeah, that that uh that was rough and it it, take, it took a long time, man. It took mm. took 3 years for me to start to turn things around. And then after that it still took a couple more years for me to get to a place where I felt like I was sort of at peace with mm. things and found acceptance which you know you've you've oh still got that gosh. part of the book to dig into which I'm excited yeah. to hear what you think of it and yeah that's that's my favorite part of the book obviously the ICU I really and like I didn't enjoy writing it it was painful it was mm. it was really hard uh, reliving that stuff but um, reading it and and how it, you know like how I was able to describe it and, and yeah. the reaction I've got from people of how just um you know real and how much they felt it and how much they really um felt like they were uh there in the bed where i was laying um so i enjoyed being able to look back at it and kind of um just yeah kind of feel sorry one second might as well You're right there, Florence. Just a little cough going on, but that's completely adds to the ambience. It's perfect. It's all good. We've got Brad's lovely caregiver, I presume. Yeah. 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 So I wasn't sure if you guys were like just run it and just keep going or just trim little bits out. This is all real. We we in the studio here. We got we got people here. It's good. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Brad, as you were. Um, no, I just I just liked yeah. how I was able to really describe that, yeah. and, and you know I was really proud of how that that part came out. But then yeah. everything after that, like later on, it, this is where all the learnings, all the all the mental battles, all the struggles, all the things that yeah. um, you know I was very lucky to have a woman named Susie, a kinesiologist, and uh, a friend who guided me through the mental journey, and mm. and just for me to be able to put that down on paper in a way that was easy for people to digest and because you're like you know you get these like um sort of self-help like um books you know like ones by like Eckhart Tolle and the, the sort of guru you know getting to a place of peace and and mindfulness and all that but it's quite a leap to get to that yeah. like so I, I tried reading some of those books and it was just it, I wasn't from where I was to where they were trying to get me it was just it was a massive mm. leap whereas in my book I've tried to make it like stepping stones and you know 
not like going, oh yeah, hey, this is the this is the learning and this is the way to kind of get through what you're going through. And then it wasn't like, okay, bang, cool, done. Like a switch was flipped. Yeah. You know, it was it was a struggle and it's constant work and it, and it still is. And you know, I think a lot of the misconceptions around mental health and a lot of yeah. the things that we need to work on um, is that you know people think that you can learn something and you kind of get over it and then you never deal with it again that's not the case at all it's more that you just get better and better at dealing with these things you know the more you work on it the more you sit with it and kind of learn about these things then you get better at dealing with it and and, but I think life is always going to throw shit in our direction and um, you're never going to be able to avoid that but it's just yeah building resilience and um, fortifying the mind and in ways of Looking inward and, and kind of going through the tough journey of, of breaking down the toxic beliefs that we've been led to believe over the years. And, you know, like for an example, like one of them for me that I really had to learn was around inadequacy and about me feeling like I was no longer good enough or worthy of, you know, I didn't think any woman would want to be with me in this situation because I'd lost my physical ability. And that's because I put all my value on my physical ability. And the reality is, like, there is so much value that we have outside of that. Um, and I just had to learn that that's, that's something that was worth it and that, that made mm. me, um, you know, like I've had relationships since, this, since the accidents happened and had, you know, women that I never thought would fall in love with me that didn't know me before the accident, they didn't know the the pro athlete Brad who was a model and had you know abs and all that stuff like it was I'd lost all that and so I'm like yeah I didn't think that that was kind of on the cards for me anymore but proved that wrong and um and yeah you know that was I guess the toxic belief was that all women are interested in is you know the physical stuff and you know so that was um yeah, that was part of the journey there was digging into all that sort of stuff and kind of uh, readjusting my programming, I guess, in my mind of what what I value and about myself. And, and it was a journey of self-love, really, to to find myself again. And um, very grateful, you know, it was a fucking tough road. and But I'm very grateful for, to have gone through that because it means that, yeah, I've got these tools and I've got, I'm equipped with the, the stuff to be able to get through the shit now. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was meaning before about you being a pioneer. Hate to put a big label on it, but in a way you are, you're having to really go to those bounds and places where yeah. people, I think they know it, but they don't really know unless they're in a real hole. And when they're in a real hole, they don't know where the fuck to go. They feel yeah. so helpless. And you said it just going back a bit you said a really good phrase and I think it's very true is that people do expect it to be like a light switch that oh I can turn it on and on I'm sweet I'm relieved of this pain this trauma this anxiety Mm. this depression but it doesn't work that way and the way you said that it is a fucking process and it may never leave you but for you to have the ability to endure ultimately and accept the the burdens of life and this in itself is is your whole thing is owning it, which I think, again, echoing back to that title, it just resonates with me so much because mm. 
you're not playing the victim and I imagine you must have been going through that process of having to feel like you know you're the victim now nah, fuck this fuck yeah. everyone bow down to me and you had to be like nah how did that switch because I imagine you've obviously gone far from that how did that even begin for you the the whole victim mentality thing was something that Susie and I worked through um, a lot and um, I think that one really came down to control, like understanding what we do and don't have control of. And and the thing that I found with like when you're when you're feeling like you're a victim, and and don't get me wrong, there are legitimate victims out there and people in situations where they are legitimate victims. But a lot of the time, we kind of have to look at a lot of these situations and take responsibility for ending up in that situation getting ourselves into that and because we you know all we have in life are the choices we make and that's kind of the path that we that we go on and sometimes our choices lead to these things and um, I would rather take that on myself and be responsible for the shit I'm going through because otherwise like if I'm not I'm giving everyone else the power over me and how I feel about myself and fuck that like I don't want to to live in that sort of a way and feel that way because it that takes the power away from me um and by being responsible for it even if it's something that I'm not proud of or something I don't like or um yeah it's it's taking responsibility and and going okay well if going back to owning it you know like if I don't own this it's not mine so I can't do anything about it so if I can grab onto this and go, okay, this is mine, whether I like it or not, if it's a good or a bad thing, if it's mine, then I'm in control of how it makes me feel or how, um, yeah, what what comes from that. So it's it's a bigger thing. Yeah, owning it, it's you know, there's kind of several different angles you can kind of look at it. But I think um, that one thing where I I really felt like a victim. I was like, I just was angry at the world and angry at myself and and that's where I'm I'm grateful that it was my own choices that led to this injury yeah. that you know I would hate for it to have been like I got hit by a drunk driver or something because then I'd yeah. have hatred towards someone else whereas this meant I could take full responsibility and and work through it and know that it was that it's mine to own and um fuck that must have been tough bro the responsibility part yeah. For you, so is that basically you accepting it? Well, this is my decision. It was due to my actions that I can't even. Yeah, and even you know, um, so often we say, "Oh, you've made me feel this way." Mm. In whatever situation it might be, it could be a relationship, it could be between friends, someone you know, it could even be on social media, whatever. If someone has made you feel this way, you're giving them power. You're like we are in control of how we feel. Like, sure, someone could say some shitty things toward you and you go, okay, well, that just means you're a pretty shitty person. How much value do I give that person's opinion is where it comes down to. Obviously, if it's a family member or someone close, then we kind of need to look at that in a different way and potentially take it on yeah, board because, yeah. you know, we do need our, our people around us to keep us in check sometimes. But, yeah, it's you got to look at, how much power we're giving other people over our how we feel about ourselves because 
I just and, and again I, I don't I don't want to give other people power over me like that's and how I feel because yeah otherwise you're again in that victim um, box so mm-hmm. no it's just that's where I find yeah it's just important to know that we are in control of how we feel and um, and yeah I think that again just gives us power back and ownership in our own yeah. lives how did that even that process even begin for you to start making that shift to taking responsibility because I just can't imagine that yeah how, how how did that even begin I mean every part of this journey was slow and just chipping away at it like and I think how it began would be when Susie would come and see me once a week and we'd sit there and she, being a kinesiologist she would do her kinesiology thing and I'm not even going to really try and explain how that works because I don't fully understand it's, it yeah. it's it's really interesting though because there I you know I, I very much doubted it from the beginning I'm like wait so you're you're saying that like because um, I, I did a little bit of kinesiology before my accident with her and so you hold your arm out straight and then she's you know basically pushes down on your arm and asks the body a question and it's generally a yes or no and whether she can push your arm down or not um, tells her the answer pretty much and and it's funny because you try to fight it and sometimes you know she'll push and your arm goes down and then other times it stays strong regardless of how much you're fighting it and it's the body if she's asking the body something and it's a, a negative answer or something then I feel like it's just the body, it's the body's way of saying, oh, nah, you know, I'm, I, I'm not telling an authentic truth at the moment, even if it's not me saying anything, but just what my mind is thinking or what the question kind of, um, you know, causes in terms of a, re- a reaction within my body. So there's all this kind of connection between the organs and our emotions and, you know, digging and rubbing this certain spot and it's going to create a drain to help with this. And But then it's, it gets so much deeper and more complex than that. So I'd let her do that and i go, okay, I I have faith in, in this. And what got me to the point of actually believing it, because I'm like, okay, well, if you're asking my body a yes or no question, surely we can actually figure out a question that I know the answer to that you won't and we'll see if we you're in the ballpark or if you get it right. So I was like, okay, well, how old was I and what month of the year was it that I lost my virginity? And so she goes through a process of elimination, you know, like 16, no, 15, and then it's like the body, you know, responded yes, went through the months, and she nailed it. And I was like, okay, maybe there is something to this. Um, and then, yeah, and so when she come and see me, we do our kinesiology sessions, but a lot of the time it would just turn into her coming over, sitting on the couch, and whatever would come up is what we would need to talk about. Because if I, I was obviously going through a lot of shit, I you know trusted her and um, felt comfortable talking to her about things. So it wasn't like she was even there trying to pry these emotions out and you know dig into these things without me initiating it. Um, and so that's kind of how that started. Um, it was just whatever would come up, you know, whether I was feeling inadequate or feeling like a burden on my friends and family or, um, yeah, just so many different um, 
emotions that would come up. So we'd just chat through it and she'd get me to sit with the emotion. So whenever, whatever would come up, she's like, okay, well, spend some time sitting with it. Try to understand where it came from, what caused it, what led to, what were you doing that led to this emotion? What were you thinking and feeling? And then once you kind of figure that out, it's like you go next layer deeper. What is the belief behind that emotion? So inadequacy, going back to, you know, me feeling like my worth was in my body, like that was the belief behind the emotion. So the fact that I believed that meant it would trigger, you know, that emotional reaction. Um, so by adjusting those belief systems, then it means you can kind of start overcoming that emotion. And and it just became a process of, okay, wow. I'll, I'll sit with it today and 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 it just over the time I would go from having like every day was a shitty day to then only a couple of shitty days a week and then a couple of shitty days a month and then you know like it, it gets to the point now where you know I still have them but it might only be once every few months and and rather than sitting in that and not being able to overcome it in the space of you know a few hours or the rest of the day now I can kind of engage these learnings and it's almost like in my mind there's like a little notification that goes bing like if I feel jealous all of a sudden and then I like my mind goes like it's just is that metacognition it's the awareness of our thoughts mm. so then the moment I have that that thought and that feeling I'm like bing okay wait take a step back what is the belief behind this and then a lot of the time it's like how do you actually want to feel in this moment like there's a moment in my book that you'll get to um, just where I got really jealous at um, over like one of my friends and something really positive that had happened for them but I made it about myself and I hated that feeling. Like I felt, because he's one of my best mates and I never wanted to feel negative about something positive that happened to my mate but it happened and I'm like, fuck, I don't want to feel this. And so then you start to kind of dig into the belief behind it. And and honestly, jealousy generally comes from a belief of scarcity. Like, oh, if he's got that, then I can't get it. Yeah. You know, and it's like if you start to adjust that to the belief of abundance and knowing that there is an abundance of opportunity out there for everyone, um, then, yeah, you, you stop feeling that sort of a, of a feeling. So, yeah, the, just having those little mental notifications pop up is something that I've found really really valuable and it just means I can dig myself out of that emotion um, a lot quicker than it used to used to take mm. there, there was that portion I, I think I just read it a week ago and it just really hit me and it's tying into this responsibility piece I think it was the part not to give away too much but the part where I think you like you technically died but then you got resuscitated it was like about a 90 second process where I think your heart mm. stopped and your mum was there yeah. overlooking you. And then you, you I want to share this, read this portion from your book and it just hit me so hard because I, when reading it, I felt like this was that real stepping stone to you fundamentally owning it. And I, I just really want to share and hear your thoughts. Today's event had changed me. I have no interest in dancing with the Reaper I've decided to keep fighting because life is starting to feel more and more worth fighting for. I don't want my light switched off yet. I felt that that little portion, for me, it just really hit me because it seemed out of all the chaos and the darkness you're feeling <coughs> and obviously the 
fact that you had to come to acceptance and essentially take responsibility was this thing of you deciding like, nah, yeah. nah, I want to keep going. Yeah, yeah, not today, Reaper. Um, yeah, that was just, um, I actually really enjoyed uh, writing that part because that, that I think was, and I, I get confused sometimes between what ended up, what was in my first draft and what ended up in the actual book. Mm. Um but yeah, I mean, remember there was a guy that had been brought into the because I was in the trauma ICU, and he got brought in. He'd you know been shot and ended up dying, and and I just remember like knowing and just thinking about everyone that was in this ICU, and we've all got our own journeys and all you know going through our own things, and some of us are not making it, and some of us are, and. I just remember really feeling that way and I'm like, mm, you know, because up until that point before that, there were a lot of moments where I was like, nah, I'm done. Like, fuck this. this. This life isn't worth living for. Like, what could possibly be worth living for with, you know, a life without um, physical ability? And and so, yeah, that switch was, was huge and it, it really was triggered by um, the support that I had from friends and family, especially the Wakewood community, mm. fundraisers going on, and um, just having that army behind me, it was what made me go, okay, maybe I'll fight this and, um, yeah, see where I can where I can get to. And obviously, at the beginning there, you know, at that time I was fully confident that I would prove the doctors wrong. They gave me a one to two percent chance of ever gaining upper limb function. Forget walking, um, but I was like. No, you don't know me. You don't know how hard I can work. You don't know how driven I am. Uh, you don't know the odds I've defied in the past. So, um, but that that bit of hope, and even though it was kind of blind blind hope and something that didn't actually come, but having that gave me something to fight for, and it gave me that 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 focus. It gave me that. Um, yeah thing to work on and and that was my first three years that's what helped me through the first three years was just fighting and going okay now I'm gonna make rehab my full-time job I'm gonna just keep digging into it and just keep going and until I prove these doctors wrong and then obviously after three or so years I was like yeah my arms aren't any closer to, to moving and uh that's where I had to kind of shift and and work on acceptance and things yeah. like that but I imagine even that process, like having that drive, having that focus, having that hope, key massive word. I read it yeah. somewhere. I think it was today I get like a daily email and one of them was, it was exactly that. It's like not losing hope even when it may feel like blind. There's still something in our, in our being as human beings that always has this drive to live. But I think we forget that when we're in the most um, seemingly despair latent mm. situations yeah so i want to i think it be wise brad that we kind of sort of touch on you know the the background what led to the accident and also where you're going which is i think equally if not more damn impressive but the start in your book i just love how all these parts come together but what stood out and you just touched on is like no nah, you don't know your drive the saints of the doctors that nah, they don't know my drive and 
my motivation and my discipline and that's what really stood out to me is that drive you had that once you started wakeboarding you're like holy fuck <laughs> so if we could kind of get back yeah. to that portion I think it'd be important because in itself the come up of being a professional athlete but then also being a wakeboarder in that sport something that's already so niche it's it's elite of the elite yeah and it was you know I was I was very lucky to find something I was so passionate about um, at a at a young age, I was, I think, eleven years old when I first went wakeboarding, and my my mum was one of New Zealand's top water skiers, and so we did it as a family, and um, and I, yeah, I just loved it. Like first time up on a wakeboard, I never water skied again after that. I'm like, this is it. Uh, left school a year early, you know, went to Worlds, and I went over to the States and spent a you know my first season working at a camp there, and. Yeah, and just got hooked on the the endless summer and the lifestyle and just, you know, because I snowboarded and I skateboarded and did a little bit of surfing, but I think wakeboarding really grabbed me because, like, A, endless summer as opposed to endless winter. Like, it just sounds so much more appealing. Um, And you're out on the boat and babes in bikinis and all that good stuff. Like, it was just, it was for the lifestyle that I really um, got into it. Uh, And... Yeah, and then I learned and realized that you can make a career out of it. And I made enough money to scrape by, but it was, um, I'd always come home with you know, the credit card maxed out and have to go and just do a bunch of manual labor and wakeboard coaching and try to win whatever events I could just to, you know, get enough money to pay off my credit card and, you know, save up a little bit to get back to the States. But I was always going back with not enough money. I was always like, you know knew that I was I would always struggle and I would always be battling against it and the hard part was a lot of the guys I was competing against had been practically handed everything they needed and all they had to worry about was what they were doing behind the boat on the water for me I was like how am I even going to get behind the boat like to to pay for gas and to to be able to get to the events and and all these things lakes I remember yeah. reading the book. Like Mum and Dad give them the boats. gas card, and yeah, because uh, that's I mean that's Orlando. Like Orlando's yeah. got lakes everywhere. Yeah. It's um, it's it's really perfect for wakeboarding, and and uh, so I really felt from early on that I was um, worse off and sort of hard up against it, competing against these guys because you know it's not like my parents weren't supportive or anything. They really were. Um, but they weren't, you know, especially my dad would come and pick me up and yeah. we'd go wakeboarding. We had this, you know, had a had a boat that was, you know, it was, it was decent enough. It wasn't one of the um, the proper wakeboard boats yeah. that you kind of need, but it was enough for me to be able to train behind and he'd come pick me up from school and... Take you to the Oraki, right? Yeah, yeah, either Oraki Basin or down to the to the Waikato River and, um, and then that boat got stolen and unfortunately it wasn't insured so and then yeah my when i won worlds um the boat company that i was working for at the time that already yeah said if you win worlds we'll give you a boat and then i won worlds and they didn't give me a boat and i was like the fuck yeah i was was pissed about that Uh, i remember reading that part you don't (laughs) yeah no i think i'm pretty sure it made it and made the cut but yeah it was it was after um my first worlds and then so yeah, I mean that was disappointing, but later down the track that 
you know, if you want to call it adversity, the fact that I wasn't given everything that I needed and I was really fighting to, you know, had to work really hard to be able to even be there and, and to, to be able to show up. When it came to, you know, the couple of years before my accident and Lake Ronix came about, so it's my board sponsor, you know, they bought this property and and I just, I got to work, you know, I just, I got there and I just like got to work. I yeah. did not care that I wasn't wakeboarding um, most days, you know, and we, and we would, you know, get to go and ride, but it was, for me, I'm like, if I really show my value in how hard I can work here and how how passionate I am about this place and how much, um, you know, I want to be able to live here and, and manage the place, then that'll put me in this position where, like, A, I'm saving money on rent and, and gas for training and, um, you know, power bills and all that sort of stuff. And it meant I get to live with the most epic training facility in my backyard had all this support and, and respect from my peers and um, it was just one of those short-term sacrifices to make, you know, yeah. get a long-term gain and and had I not been up against it earlier in my career and had all the the struggles and the, um, yeah, those, those struggles that I had, then I wouldn't have had that work ethic and I wouldn't have been able to land that job and... Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's 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 one of those things where adversity can be an asset, um, and it's just more about going okay. If I'm in a shitty situation, like we can either sit back and complain about it, yeah. or we can work our way through it and know that it's probably giving us some tools to be able to yeah. get through shit in the future. Sort of like, sort of like when your parents sent you to Kings, right? <laughs> I laughed because yep. I went to St Peter's and I okay. laughed. I laughed so much when I read that part because I could so relate. Like, yeah. like, wait, what? You're sending me to Kings? Yeah, weekly boarding? Are you kidding me? Like, and that was, you know, after my first year at school. So I'm going to the rival school. <laughs> the year after, you know, everyone's been there for a year and formed their gr- for groups of yeah. friends and all yeah. that sort of stuff. And it was massive. Yeah, that was funny. Oh, I was so dark that I got sent there and then. Um, I was so stoked that the year later when I got my grandma jersey again yeah. for Christmas, I unwrapped the present. I'm like, a, yes. That was a pretty rad thing of your parents. And I think that was a real telling moment too because, yeah, you conveyed it really well of how supportive your parents were, especially, you know, your dad doing that in the evenings. I thought that was so cool, taking him to the basin, you know, and, and him getting that boat that wasn't necessarily well equipped for doing what you wanted to do, but then he made the adjustments for you, like putting the weight down on the back to get more of that wake, just yeah. all those little adjustments. But that portion where you went to your mum, which I thought was even big in itself for you to have the balls to do, is like, hey, ma, like, I want to pursue this wakeboarding, which meant you had to drop out of school, to then have your dream to go in the US. I thought that was like a real massive turning point too for how like you're almost doubling down into this dream you had. Yeah, and you got to take the risk sometimes. Like obviously it's there's a lot of unknowns with that. Like dropping out of school, not not pursuing the traditional uni and 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 everything like that and just going, "No, nah, I'm going to put everything in this. Like throw all my cards down on this." And um and you know, I, I wanted to be like at that point. I was already one of the best in the country at what sixteen, seventeen years old, and I just felt like I was a big fish in a small pond, and I wasn't going to grow unless I changed that. And 
so yeah I surrounded myself with you know I worked at one of the best wakeboard camps that there is and or that there was and uh, surrounded myself with you know the best coaches and put myself in the in the best situation to learn and uh, I just put myself in a mindset of just being a sponge just soak it all up like you know empty your cup you know you go into a situation prepared to learn and instead of thinking I know everything and yeah. um and I think you know my parents were very skeptical about it and they were uh, mum was obviously very worried about you know what what future career and things like that how that would all look but when I came home with that junior world title I think you know that's where they're like okay yeah, well. you know he's he's really got something here and um yeah it was uh yeah, and then the following year, which you would have read, you know, and I go back over, but I wasn't working at a camp, and so I wasn't, yeah. like, getting free riding and board yeah, and stuff, right. and so I just yeah. dug myself into a massive hole of debt. Yeah. And thankfully, mum was really supportive with that, and she basically went, well, hey, I've spent this money on your on your sister's uni. Um, so, you know, so equivalent, similar amount mm -hmm. of money, so mm -hmm. let's just write this one off for this year. You're on your own from here on out. Sure, she did bail me out a couple more times. Um, but, yeah, it was just, you know, I think that even from her as well was, it. you know, it, it was one of those things where you can't have your parents bail you out all the time, yeah, you know, and, yeah. and, it, and it basically put the responsibility on me to go, hey, look, if this is something you really want to pursue, then you have to make the sacrifices and and um and have the drive and and yeah. work ethic and everything to be able to do it yeah um so yeah and that that's that sort of you know but a tough love like it's yeah it's, it's it's that balance you know that support but also kind of um yeah letting letting me kind of leave the nest and mm -hmm. um, pursue it on my own yeah it's a it's a micro example in the scheme of your story but i remember when i went traveling and 2018 it was coming to the end of the year I was there for about seven eight months and I ran out of money reached out to my mum and dad because I I didn't want to come home they're like nah we're not giving you anything either come home um or yeah you have to deal with it. I was like fuck but exactly that that tough love but then I mm. had to persevere because I didn't want to go home so I had to persevere I yeah. think there's that perfect degree of that you need that. Like, first of all, it's a privilege to have the love. Like, what a gift! But then to know that you've got that. But then for them to not just not give you handouts, you know. Mm. Yeah, it just it, it puts you in a situation where, like, with your situation there, it's like, well, I don't want to go home, so I have to find a way here. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. you, you your back's up against the wall, and you got to just find a way. And yeah. it's and 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 the the good thing with that is is it it teaches us that we have that ability to push through the hard situations and and you know we can find a way to to get through some of that stuff because there were yeah there were times where I was in the states and I'm like I was really when I finally like bought a vehicle over there even if I didn't have anywhere to stay I'm like at least I've got somewhere I can sleep yeah I can pull up anywhere I can sit you know get in the back and and like but when I didn't have that and I was like relying on you know trying to crash on people's couches and it was just a very unsettling situation to be in but um again it kind of it's when you're in that sort of a situation where 
things aren't going so smoothly and and you you know you can't even get a bit desperate like a you you find the generosity that people have and like there were so many people that were just amazing and helped me out along the way and let me crash on the couch or um you know and I would do what I could to help out and and show my gratitude but uh, yeah, there were some situations where I'll just, you, you feel sick to your stomach. You're like, how am I going to get out of this? Like, how am I going to get through this, this moment? And like, there'd be times where I was about to go on tour and I'm like, I only have enough money for gas to get me from point A to point B. And then I have to hope that I'm going to make a little bit of money at point B so that I can carry on. And I just really hope my truck doesn't die on me because I have zero reserves and, the anxiety that that can build and and um you would have read this i ended up having uh taking some mushrooms and it was not the right time to be taking mushrooms when i was in that sort of frame of mind like i just ended up spiraling and uh had a pretty pretty negative trip but um no it's it's one of those things i was on the road for like four months and i just ended up finding places to go and coach and earn a little bit of money and that's yeah. where I picked up like commentating and cool I didn't have to pay my entry fees and I get like 150 bucks it was it was nothing but it was enough for me to get to that next yeah. spot yeah to do some coaching to earn a little bit more and carry on and I became a pool boy in Texas and you know living with a buddy there and helping him out with his job and so yeah it was pretty pretty funny that some of the situations you end up in was there was there many other people? I don't, I can't actually recall you touching on. Was there many other kids from New Zealand people? Because you said you're basically national champ, so probably not a that had made the move that you had. There was um, there was Jeff Weatherall who um, paved the way for me. Basically, yeah, he he was our top um, wakeboarder. I mean, I never even I never got to beat him in the New Zealand nationals okay. um, for, for whatever reason. No matter how good I rode. He would always one up me, and um, and and New Zealand nationals. There were there were some other events around the world, or like some world champs and stuff that I ended up beating him at. But it was just that thing he always held over me it was a New Zealand national title. And but yeah, he was who I lived with um, for a couple of the, the seasons over there, and he was really right. really helpful with that. But and then there was um, you know our top woman, um, like female athlete, was Andrea Fountain, and she was. You know, we were all sort of living together and helping each other out over there. And, um, but there's been a, a couple of riders that have gone to Orlando and tried to pursue it, but um, not, yeah, none have really made it. And, um, you know, and performance wise and, and how good they are at riding, like some of them have become really good, but. Uh, it's just the the game has stepped up so much and it takes such yeah, dedication. Yeah. And I, I, I was, you know, I kind of regretted not moving to the US but more full-time earlier on um, because I felt like that was one of the things that really held me back and yeah. um, meant just that I wasn't... full immersion, you mean, and just yeah. being, yeah. Um, and, and I think, like, even sponsors may not have picked me up because they're like, oh, well, we're US-based and we're only getting six months worth, worth of value out of you each year as opposed to, like, even in the winter over there. Like, it doesn't get too cold in Florida, but then that's when a lot of the boat shows are happening. And so if you've got, you know, got a boat sponsor, then you go along to the boat shows and you're there to kind of help sell boats. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't doing that. So, 
Yeah, I think it, it takes a lot of commitment and um, and these days, unfortunately, it takes a lot of money. Uh, the sport has just escalated to the point where the boats are just getting ridiculously expensive, imagine. and yeah. which is amazing for the wake size Oops. and, you know, yeah. the performance, but... The boards, like how much have they, have they progressed? Has that been like... Cause yeah, I mean, I think they're probably on par with yeah. um, inflation, but yeah. the boats, like... Some of them are half a million dollars or more now, yes. and and it means that even the boats back when I was riding in those early two thousands, early to mid two thousands, some of the top boats you know were only eighty to a hundred grand, which at then you know was a decent chunk, a lot of money. Mm. But now, twenty years later, almost they're still eighty to a hundred grand. Those boats that are twenty years old, and it's because the better boats that have come out have gotten more and more and more expensive. Mm. So it hasn't driven the price of these ones down. That's kind of kept I them, see. kept them up. So it's it's tricky. It's a hard one, you know, yeah. because technology. You want technology to advance. You want things mm. to get better, but it it is making a bit more of an elitist sport. And um, yeah, I could, I could and it, it, yeah, it's 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 a bit more challenging. Whereas, yeah. you know, the the boat we had was just a bayliner that had like a a tower on it and some some ballast tanks, and it was close enough to what I would compete behind. Um, in those early years, that was quick. Mm. Yeah, but it's um. So yeah, just just kind of like sort of encapsulating that. It's it was the drive and the grit and the determination and the balls you had, for lack of a better term, to be able to take that leap to then go over. You said you didn't move, but you just even doing that to live there for six months is quite like massive and pivotal. And I think that sort of ties into your whole personality and that story and that grit and going back to what you were saying to the nurses in the ICU, like, nah, fuck that, you don't know me. And now here you are kind of with that same degree of um, mentality, but it's almost cracked up. Mm. Yeah, and it's, um, I mean, you know, we had a great support system over there, like, you know, the Kiwis and Aussies kind of bounded together and... Um, we'd all ride together and just had such a cool um, camaraderie so it was good to have that support because like you know um, situations where I, I did need to crash somewhere then I could mm. you know generally rely on one of the boys to let me crash on the couch and um, you know if if trying to pull pull a chick to go and stay with failed um, but uh, it was yeah it was a it was an interesting journey and then uh, you know loved the camaraderie that came from when we were at Lake Roanoke's and the team were all just working together to try to build this facility for ourselves. Um, that was really cool. But then obviously that's kind of where we lead into the crash and, and how all that happened. So. Yeah, which is a perfect segue. So leading up to it, you said um, you would, in the, in the competitions leading up to it, I can't, I can't actually even recall I've got so many patches missing in the book, but you'd you'd been basically on the precipice of being world champ or close to it, correct? Yeah, or not so much world champ, yeah. um, but I. So there was an event. It was several weeks before the crash happened, and so what had happened with Lake Ronix, um We like Ronix had kind of partnered with um, Sassy Tech, which was a cable system so it's like you know sort of like a t-bar on this on the mm. ski lift on the ski mountain um but it 
takes you back and forth across the lake or there's the bigger versions that go round and round and you can have 10 people on it at a time and it's like a floating skate park kind of thing. Um, and so we ended up having that and then there was an event called Wake Open that had this big mega ramp, like big floating landing ramp, like sort of your, similar to your freestyle motocross landings but um, unfortunately not like the new ones that are all inflatable because that would have been just great, floating on the water, like easy to easy to float and, and more, um, uh, a bit more forgiving um, for, on crashes. But this was a giant wooden structure. And so they had it for this event, which was in Tampa. Um, and then afterwards it had nowhere to go. So we're like, oh, we'll have it. And so we ended up with this mega ramp landing and kind of built this um, raised uh, pond uh, or like pool that was on a peninsula that came out from uh, across the lake. And so we had, it was about maybe two to three metres um, from water level in the lake to the water level in the in the pond. Mm. So it was kind of like a step up or a step down if you're coming out of the pond. And so we put the, the ramp in the, in the pond at the top and uh, would basically go over about a 70-foot land gap and then land down this landing ramp. And it was... It was something that like me and Jeff Weatherall had been talking about for years, like wanting to do it and even pitched it to Red Bull and we're trying to like make this thing happen and then they ended up just going taking the idea and putting it into their event, which Classic. you know, we can't claim you know, I'm not gonna come cl- claim that we fully came mm-hmm. up with the idea and they fully stole it, but it's kinda how it appeared a little yeah, bit. Yeah. But yeah, it was awesome that we ended up with this uh mega ramp and, and I think the whole team we were so pumped on on this new direction of the sport because usually it's you know you're competing behind the boat just doing flips off the wake and crashing into the water and so I was sort of used to crashing in that sort of way and that's again what one of the factors that led to my my accident um, was just not being used to falling a certain way on a solid structure mm. and um, so yeah it would um, there was the event in Germany that was a couple of a few weeks before my crash. That was the only other other place in the world that had a mega ramp. So I, we'd been practicing enough, and I'd just landed my first double flip over the mega ramp. Ten, what are they? Tantrum. Tantrum, yeah. yeah. So it's basically a straight back flip. Interesting. Whereas Why is that, by the way? Why do they call it the name? Back? It was just one of these things in the yeah. early days of wakeboarding. If you were the first to land a trick, you got to name it. You know, and there was like say a, cool. a tantrum with a a 360 but instead of passing you know if you do a 360 and you're holding onto the handle you have to pass the handle around your body um otherwise you get wrapped up in the rope and but there was a way that when you're doing a flip and a spin at the same time you can like loop the handle up over your head using your arm and that so they called that a whirly bird like after a helicopter you know and so there are all these names, like some of them are real dumb. You got like, well, there's literally one called Dum Dum, which is named after a candy in America, and Tootsie Roll, which is another one. Um, and, and, you know, some of these are like buddies of mine that now that, you know, they were quite young when they landed these yeah, tricks. Yeah. And so they're just coming up with these silly names. But uh, yeah, so the difference is a tantrum is sort of a straight backflip, whereas a back roll is like a sideways rolling sort yeah. of flip. So that's sort of the difference there. Um, but yeah, so I did double tantrum, landed it, uh, got invited to Rising High in Germany, big Red Bull event, and um, and so went over to that, and that's where I landed the double tantrum to blind, so double backflip, 
grabbing indie, so it's back backhand uh, on the toe side edge of the board between your feet. And then as you're coming out of the second flip, you can kind of spot your landing a little bit and then you've got to tug on the rope and pull it into your lower back and you basically land backwards down the, um, the landing ramp. And so that's why it's called a blind landing because you can't really see where you're going. And yeah, it was just one of these things I'd, I'd gotten so like dialed in on my, my backflip, on my double tantrums. And a couple of the boys were there, some teammates and, you know, one of my, my mates from Aussie. Um, and they were there and they're just egging me on going, yeah, you can do it, like go to blind and kind of, I'd, I'd thought about it. I'd even tried some uh, back at Lake Ronix, but doing a step up into the pond as opposed to landing on the landing ramp. I see. And that was a way for me to learn these tricks, to know that I'd crash into the water yeah, yeah, as yeah. opposed to onto the structure. And... Um, so yeah, I ended up landing it there at that event, but it was in the practice. Didn't land it in the actual event, so I ended up getting fourth, I think. Um, but I knew I was going to win Trick of the Year. And so that's why I think you might have been referring yeah. to as opposed to World Champion, but yeah, Trick of the Year was like the pinnacle. Because right. um, it hadn't been done, right? No, or yeah, that trick hadn't been done. Yeah. And it was sort of, you know, even one of, the, one of my teammates that was there was Parks Bonifay, and he's like, the legend he's the tony hawk of you know of wakeboarding he's sort of got that um you know that that goat status about him and just one of the biggest legends and he's such a good dude and we became really good friends and and he came up to me afterwards and he was like dude that was the craziest trick i've ever seen done on a wakeboard and to have someone like that say that to you it was just mind-blowing and so i kind of knew i was going to win trick of the year but unfortunately when um when that event came, or that awards ceremony came around, I was already in the spinal unit. Because, yeah, um, cause, yeah we, we had a, a movie called Prime that we were filming. And, uh, yeah, this is leading up to... Yeah, yeah. so that was kind of yeah. like the biggest film of the year. Yeah. And, you know, helicopters, filming helicopters, filming wakeboarding. Like, there was just drones and all this stuff going on. It was N- like... Nitros, wasn't it? Nitros, Travis Pastrama? Yeah, we had right? those guys come out. But yeah. that, that wasn't for that movie. But we, okay. we did have some... Um, some days with them coming out to the, the lake. Extreme cats, and for those that don't know, like they're extreme athletes. Mm. So that must have been some fuel for you to... For sure. I, I end up double flipping over Travis Pastrana and and that was pretty cool. I almost took him out actually, unfortunately. But, um, but yeah, so we we were filming this, this movie and it came down to the last day of filming. Yeah. And so I was like... Day. I'd already landed the double tantrum to blind. I'd already landed some good double double flips like for the movie, but I'm like, now everyone knows I can land this trick. So if it's not the banger at the end of the section, it's, it's not in the film, it will be a letdown. That was kind of my mindset. And so final day of filming, I'm just putting everything into it. You know, we're even like half an hour into riding and my legs are starting to get a bit shaky. I'm starting to kind of get a bit worn out, but I'm like, no, nah, I'm not I'm not stopping. And I was getting so close to landing it and riding away. I had a few crashes and I was just a bit stubborn at that point. And because it was make or break for me at that point. I was I was twenty seven years old. I'd been going to the States for ten years by this point. I still hadn't quite made it. I wasn't making enough money to actually be earning money or like to be anywhere above scraping by. So I was like, I need to make this statement and I need the sponsors to see me. And and so 
that kind of desperation is I think what led me to keep going and then yeah just um, one of them just felt wrong and I bailed out at the wrong time um, I had this kind of bailout point halfway through the first flip so if I you know you tuck into the flip and you if you stay tucked you spin really quickly in, in the flip but if you open out then it slows it right down so halfway through the first flip if I'd open out and let go of the grab then I'd be able to just stop it at a single flip and then you know try again and and so that was also how I learned how to do the double flip because I'd just open out halfway through the first flip and go okay I, I know how much time I've got I so if I stay tucked I can kind of gauge gauge it and from there it was just balls like it was just that moment of just yeah going for it and um yeah I opened out and I just I knew I'd gone too big I knew I'd opened out too late and I was gonna end up continuing on rotating onto my back or my head or something I, I you know it was just everything slowed down I had enough time to think thankfully I still had tension on the rope so like that trick I was talking about earlier the whirly bird where you loop the handle up mm. over your head and you kind of turn it into a spin that's basically what I did but it was like much later than you would usually do it for that whirly bird trick so I'm coming out of the first flip and then tugged on the rope, spun around, almost like it was basically, I was 90 degrees short of saving it. And so rather than, you know, obviously standing sideways on a board, when you land, you want the nose of the board facing down the ramp and kind of in the direction you're going. I had my toes facing down the ramp, so I just Damn. basically tumbled forward like that and um, tried to tuck and roll because I was like, I don't want to go face first into this thing. Tried to tuck and roll and got my head under and it just fucking smoked me. Uh, knocked me out, like smashed the helmet off my head uh, and uh, I ended up face down in the water and thankfully my buddies were there to get me and, and one of them who I'd, I'd made sure he was there that day because two months earlier, uh, because I was living at Lake Ronix and managing the place, I was like, for safety reasons, I need to do a water safety course and CPR course and know what to do if someone gets really hurt out here because we were pushing the limits and one of my teammates had already broken his leg pretty badly earlier that season. And um, so me and uh, my buddy Chad, um, Chad Sharp, a, a, another legend of the sport, we went and did this water safety course and the CPR and part of it was stabilising a spinal cord injury in the water. And um, so that was kind of spooky, the fact that, you know, I made sure he was there and that's exactly what he had to do. So they got to me, he came out with the paddle, the stand-up paddleboard, like kind of paddled that out to get to me. And um, him and, and my buddy Dean Smith, who was a, one of the top Australian riders, and um, Dean flipped me over, I was blue in the face, eyes wide open, not responding. He basically thought I was dead. Um... And they kind of pulled me up onto the paddleboard and were ready to try and do CPR right there and then. And, and it wouldn't have worked. You can't do CPR on a floating like paddleboard. But um, I, I like to kind of, uh, in my in my talks, um, motivational spe speeches and stuff, I, I talk about this and I kind of make try to make the joke because it's a bit, it's a bit of a somber, you know, heavy mm. time and you want to break that up a little bit. But... You know, something inside of me I must have known that one of my buddies was about to put his mouth to mine and so I started breathing on my own. And uh, I woke up and um, and then that's when it sort of all the chaos set in. 
they they pulled me back into the shore and and I remember like at first when, when I was still in the water and I was like where's my board where's my yeah. wakeboard I can't feel it and then um, they were like it's still there man it's still on your feet and then I got to the shoreline and the, you know doing all this other stuff and then next thing I'm like oh can you just take my board off my feet are killing me like I just and like it's already off man we've already taken it off and that's when I was like okay this is this is bad and couldn't move couldn't feel first responders got there um from the local fire department and then um and then yeah the helicopter got called in and I was obviously not so happy about that especially in the US with the exorbitant and that's all I was worried about. I'm like, yeah. how much is this going to cost me? Like, I can't afford this shit. Yeah. Not not realizing that just how, the gravity of the situation I was in and how, um, you know, life-threatening it was. And so, yeah, thankfully my friends were really, really quick to respond. And um, I got, yeah, flown off to the hospital and, and for the MRI. And I, I don't really remember a lot after that for about a week. Mm. Yeah, it's the part that got me, man. Like where where your mum came and you just said in the book how you felt this immense guilt. Like you, it kind of goes back to you having that responsibility. How you said you had to take responsibility, but that was such a heavy thing that you had to you mentally put yourself through. A feeling like mm. you'd done this and it was your fault and what had you done and you know the fact when your mum came that that hit me, man. That was a hard part to read. Yeah, and I think most people would feel that, you know, anyone who's got a good relationship with their mum, like, yeah, you, you, yeah, I was just seeing that pain reflected in her eyes and it just, I, I couldn't look her in the eyes, like, <sighs> for any longer than a moment, um, uh, probably for a, at least a year or so, like, it, it was something that I really struggled with and that was one of the first things that Susie and I started working through and she really, you know, um, was really good at kind of putting it into perspective and going like look you're not responsible for your mum the way your mum reacts same as you know what I was saying earlier about yeah. we're responsible for our own feelings and yeah. and you know I'm I'm not responsible for the way she reacts obviously I, I was responsible for my injury but she's a mother her, you know her role as a mother and and just instinctively they're, they're there to care for their children and so that's that was her response and and but I I had to really learn to not hang on to that guilt and um and, and that was hard it took a long time but uh yeah it's it was a certainly a, a struggle and it was wild though like waking up that mo first morning that I remember and I'm there and I'm in the room and I didn't even know that I was paralyzed. I woke up, was oblivious to everything and I look across and I thought, I see this cute nurse and I'm like, I must have gone home with her last night. Fuck, I must have had a bit to drink. I can't remember shit. I'm like, kind of like looking around and, and there's like a couple of nurses. I'm like, oh, that must be roommates and getting ready for work. And then she walks in the room and I'm like, try to sit up and say good morning or something. But I'm like, couldn't move couldn't talk couldn't like do anything because I was on a ventilator at this point so when you're on a ventilator you can't speak because um, they you know you get the hole in the front of your throat where they put the, the tube in and the they have to, yeah and they have to inflate a balloon in your throat above it so that the air doesn't just rush out through your mouth mm -hmm. and um, so it means you can't speak you can't eat you can't drink 
and uh, so I had a feeding tube in um, through my nose and uh, yeah it was just mad but waking up and, and just being oblivious and then just for it all to hit me and then I kind of remembered the night before which I had this crazy hallucinations I thought I'd been kidnapped I yeah, thought I'd been left for dead shit that tripped me out when I was like wait what's happening here mm. like I was the wake skater is taking you yeah. away yeah and it was because the the nurse that um that was looking after me that night and I didn't realize it because it wasn't until a couple of weeks later that he was rostered on with me again mm. and then I like looked at him I'm like you look really familiar yeah. and he, he just resembled a wake skater that I knew so he was there that night while I was like I had a 108 degree Fahrenheit temperature Jesus. so like 42 degrees it's verging on like brain damage sort of material and they covered me like neck to toe in ice filled the whole bed up with ice just to cool me down and um uh yeah I just gone into these wild hallucinations and I made some connection that wasn't there and <laughs> thought these wake skaters were trying to kill me or trying to yeah I don't I it was just such a trippy situation and just wild to go through like you know five or six days without remembering anything and even though I was wow. awake and I was alert wow. and I was responsive to the people around me, but yeah. Just One of your friends came, I remember reading. Mm. He had come a few days earlier and apparently you were up and awake and you were surprised because you're like, oh, good to see you, but you'd already seen him. Yeah, he'd already been. He was like, what, dude? Like I'd, I was here a couple of weeks ago. and yeah. So yeah, so that was trippy. Uh, and I don't know if it was like a combination of, you know, the impact causing you know, a bit of... Um, prolonged concussion yeah uh potentially the nine hour surgery which they put two rods a plate 14 screws in my neck to piece it all together and it took yeah nine hours and um or you know just general trauma potentially the drugs they had me on but even just my brain protecting me from the trauma of that which is i feel like that's probably what it was massive just the the part, yeah, it's the ICU part. I've only, I've only just got up to and it's it's starting to go lighter. But I think that's a big part of what I want to touch into is like you know, you just ah fuck, um, how you how you just had to accept, like. Like we 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 the immensity of such a accident and the not only that what what people in a daily go through and they almost feel that the burden of their reality they put it on on the same relative to what you went through an accident because they're going through that and they they have that self perception of novices unbearable and yet. It ties into that section of, you know, today's event that changed you, we basically your heart stopped. But before that, you coming to terms with the fact that, holy shit, you know, you went through all the things you'd realise that you'd lost, but then you having to make that shift. How, how, did, you, how did you do that? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I was at a spinal cord injury research symposium the other day and one of the one of the panelists mentioned that, um, you know, a lot of us in the in the early days with the sort of an injury, we kind of 
believe that it's a sentence worse than de- worse than death. You know, it's like most people would rather in that in those early weeks would rather die than carry on living with this sort of an injury or this sort of situation. And and yeah, like that that quote that you read out earlier from the book. Um, you know, where I kind of you know I'm, I'm not, not going to let the reaper take me or whatever it was. And um, but yeah, I think it was that turning point where my heart stopped and I almost did die. And then I woke up and I'm like, okay, I've given a, been given another chance. Mm. And that was like, that was where that, that turning point happened. Yeah. It's like, okay, I almost got what I was wishing for at that time because I was wishing for, for death. And um, yeah, to, to have almost got that and then to come out of it and then wake up and see my mum's face and to, yeah, that that was really I think yeah I think that quote that you read came right after that and so yeah it did yeah and it's massively pivotal in in that and people the amount of people that are going through that on a daily and it's like you know don't not to put the burden on you but like if you're speaking directly or for right now we're speaking directly to that person you came to that yourself so to say, of that acceptance but also the willingness mm. to continue, how would you, if you could, speak to that person that is in that feeling of being in a pit of despair? Um, I mean, there's, there's like sort of a quote I heard the other day where it's about like when it comes to like suicide, for example, um, ending our own life you know, guarantees the, you know, that things aren't going to get any worse, but it also guarantees that things can't get better. And I, I mean, I can't remember exactly how it was worded, but something along those lines. And it's, um, I think there's a, a chapter that is later on in the book, but it also relates to that pivotal moment was, uh, the, and the chapter is called Breakdowns Leading to Break, or Breakdowns to Breakthroughs. And I think that, hitting rock bottom sometimes is necessary to then um, kind of propel ourselves back up. Mm. And so that was sort of a rock bottom moment for me. Like even further, I didn't, you know, didn't think I would actually get to the point where my heart would stop and I would almost be given this, you know, (laughs) death sentence that I was semi wishing for at the time. But almost getting that, you know, caused me to go. Okay, no, there's there's more to this, and there's more opportunity, and there's there's this is worth fighting for. Um, and yeah, same with that breakdowns to breakthroughs chapter where I, this is three years after the accident, but I was I was just all I was focusing on was trying to get my arm movement back, and because I'd fought and fought and fought for three years, it's like if you're trying to every single day you get up and you go and try to move this boulder that's in your backyard and every single day you try and move it and every single day you fail at moving it you can't budget you can't do it and you try for three years and it just chips away at you and you just get I was just getting deeper and deeper into depression into depression and just um yeah I I was having some pain issues as well so I ended up back at the spinal unit for a couple of weeks to investigate the pain stuff which I think was probably the start of what I've been going through for the last few years but 
even though it was several years before that. And, um, and I just decided, okay, I need to figure this out mentally. Um, you know, and I'm jumping forward a little bit from like ICU to this, but it's, um, it was really a, a moment of, um, all right, I need to go get rid of all distractions. I need to sit with this and, and understand, um, maybe what I'm resisting as well, like in stuff that Susie had already taught me, like around acceptance and things like that. And, and I've realized that I was resisting acceptance even three years later. And, um, and I fully accepting your mm, reality. Yeah. And that was because acceptance to me felt submissive as well. I'm like, this isn't something empowering. This isn't something that I feel like I can grab onto and, and move forward with. And so that's where owning it came about. Cause it's like, okay, that's a, another step forward past acceptance. It's like, um, yeah, not just going, okay, well, I guess I'm this, you know, it's going, well, fuck yeah, this is me, you know? And it's like grabbing onto it and owning it. And that's, I, I think just the way that I had lived my life before. And I just, I felt like I needed that in order to feel like I was back to being myself again. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited for you to get to that point because that's where, uh, where I really start to let all these learnings that Susie had kind of come to me with and helped me work through. Uh, I started to really let them sink in and um, grab a hold of them and stop looking back at everything I couldn't do anymore and started going, all right, what can I do? What is What are the opportunities there for me? What what am I grateful for that I do have as opposed to going, what don't I have anymore? And and that just comes down to gratitude, really, and that's such so, so powerful um, because, you know, going back to, I think there's something I was talking about earlier around control and what we do and don't have control of. And if we really, really strip it back, I feel like there's three main things that we can have full control of in our lives and that's our attitude, our effort and our actions and focusing in on those three things allows us to, to really um, uh, grab onto what we have control of and, and kind of brush aside all the bullshit that, you know, all these things that we, we feel we, even our own bodies, we don't have full control of that. Like we don't have control of whether we get cancer or not. Like that stuff happens. Um, we, we can mitigate that. We can do everything we can to be healthy and all that sort of stuff. But full control, we're not in control of our car. That can break down at any point. You know, we're not in control of how others feel about us or anything like that. It's, uh, and that was a huge, uh, huge point for me to learn all of that and to really let that soak in to go, all right. Because in my situation, obviously, I've got less control than you know, in most able-bodied people. Um, and, you know, I've got to rely on caregivers. I've got, you know, I've got to rely on ACC and government funding and all these other things and medication. And so bringing it back to those three things, attitude, effort, action, just simplifies it. And it's like, yeah. Um, also kind of leads into what's important in life and, you know, like the way we treat others and, you know, because you think about when we're, we're long gone, um, the amount of money you had or sorts of cars and all this sort of thing, it doesn't matter. No one remembers that shit. But people remember how you made them feel. Yeah. And I think that's... Um, the impact that yeah. you left. Yeah. 
and that's why I think this book is you doing that is leaving that impact and that's that's amazing I find that is so powerful and speaking going back to the question of really speaking to that person who is feeling hopeless and in that pit of despair is way you the way you convey that is attitude effort and reaction I think that's um yeah action action, sorry action yeah I think that again people might oh it's easier said than done but really it's but it's not easy Mm. I think I think that's the whole scope of things like you know here you are owning it and as you just touched on at the start of the conversation it's not easy but you're getting more and more equipped with dealing with this you're getting it seems you're getting more of a vantage point but you're still in that pain or still having to endure the process of say let's walking up that mountain but you're getting more and more of a vantage point you may never reach the peak but you know for a fact that you are making steadfast capable of making those yeah the, those gains and going uphill and um but yeah i obviously went on a bit of a tangent there but i think yeah going back to what would i say to someone it's that um you know Possible, there's there's always possibility of things getting better, and um, I think you know because so, I've recently become a um, or got involved with uh, spinal support in New Zealand, so become like a peer supporter. I go back to the spinal unit every now and again and go and just go and meet new people who are going through these injuries because I remember how lonely I felt and how yeah. scary it was, and you just have all these beliefs about what life might be. Mm-hmm. And that was the biggest thing is that's why I was struggling with acceptance because I was trying to accept all these things that were like future-based. It was all like I was trying to accept all these fears that I had around what my future might be when acceptance is only accepting the here and now, mm-hmm. you know, the reality of what, what where we are right now. And um, so when I go on to, you know, to meet people, it's I don't go in with the attitude of like um, – I don't. I, I certainly don't say, "Oh, this is how your life is going to be," because I have no idea. Everyone's life is different, um, and but I just go in and I say, "Look, you know, I I felt that same way, but I've done been incredibly lucky to do some amazing things, uh, have some incredible experiences, to have you know beautiful women fall in love with me, to have um, found new passions and new drives, and and yes." life is still very challenging um but even even when it comes to like a spinal cord injury because i'm coming from the perspective of someone who hasn't regained movement Mm. but a lot of people do Mm. so it's like dig into the rehab Mm. fight for every bit of movement back that you can in those first few years um but yeah don't be afraid to to look at what I guess the actual goal is um, for me, and that initially it was uh, I needed, I wanted to try and get arm movement back, mm. and I thought that that was my path to happiness. And I'm like, well, Fuck. the actual goal is happiness. It's not not moving my arms. Yes, that's part of it, but the real goal is happiness. So if I can get to a point of being happy, even in the situation I'm in, then to me that's somewhat of a recovery. Yeah. And um, so yeah, it's it's hard. We all go through challenging times uh, on different scales and uh, I, I just think it's really important to know that there is always hope and mm-hmm. um, as much as we feel like we're a burden on people mm-hmm. uh, people love to be able to help and that's one thing you know with 
because um, it's living in service, right? It's the name yeah. of this this podcast, and yeah. so that's something that I've come to where as opposed to centering things around myself and doing things for myself, the times where I feel the best is when I've done something to help someone else. Mm. And, and that's huge. I think that's such a big big thing to to learn and understand and focus on is, is knowing that um, the more that we can help others and the more that we can make a positive impact on, even if it's just one person, to me, that's that's more of a successful life than becoming a millionaire or having a Lamborghini or whatever these people will try to um, convince you in some of these podcasts you see online. But yeah, yeah. I feel you there. Yeah, and I think it ties into the writing of the book. Um, I guess you've answered it, but really with writing that book, what was your intentions for writing this book? Oh, to make loads of money. No, you never make money off writing a book, or like unless it just sells like crazy. But because um, you only yeah, you only make a few hey, bucks. This podcast might do that. Yeah, there you go. I mean, but that's the thing—you make a few bucks per book. But um, yeah. I a the first thing was the challenge of actually doing it and completing mm-hmm. it, and knowing and like um, persevering and actually finishing it was something I just really wanted to do because I was offered a ghostwriter to come in and basically sit with me and I'd tell them my story and they'd write the book for me. I'm like, well, there's very few things that I can actually do for myself anymore. So if writing a book, if there's a possibility of doing that, then I'll do it. Fuck and, you know, yeah. I've got, I have my phone mounted in front of me, yeah. biting onto a mouth that. stick. Yeah, can you please just like, I saw some videos, I'm like, fuck, bro. <laughs> that looks... It was taking a challenging thing on its own, like writing a book and just throwing yeah, in man. all these other extra challenges. Um, we have freaking recliner, fireplace, <laughs> like, you know, cup of tea, you can chill, you know, you're just, you're bound, man. Yeah. And so, yeah, I've got this like mouth stick stylus that I bite onto and I use that to use my phone and I just typed away for six years was how long it took me to write it. And... To be honest, from the beginning, it was just like the first thing I wrote was that morning I woke up in the hospital and just because I just remember recalling that and I'm like, okay, I want to write this down. Okay. And, I, and I wrote it probably two years after it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at the time, like I didn't have a publishing deal or anything. I just was like, okay, I want to write this. And I even thought the, the book would end with me walking again or um, I didn't really know where, where it would go at that point. And so I was just writing mainly pre-injury stuff um, or just like ICU sort of um, situation, the, those first couple of things I wrote, which was that morning and then also the hallucinations. Um, but yeah, it was just a challenge I wanted to, to be able to do and so I just worked my way through it and then I ended up getting a publishing deal and I got the book deal and um, that's when like we had uh, – deadlines and stuff like that coming in and I must have must have pushed my my um deadline back probably five or six times probably a year and a half I think from the initial um target so but no it was just like also because I had no idea how to write a book Mm -hmm. a because I'd probably never really read that many books before my accident I was outside playing and you know pushing myself Mm -hmm. physically that wasn't my thing and so I'd read a couple of books post-accident and then 
all I knew was, okay, I'm going to write it in first-person present tense. And I got that from reading Andre Agassi's book, Open, yeah. which he, he does you know really well in that. And then... Super and it, it's it's good. It really makes you feel like you're there in that in that um, in his shoes. And so I wanted to do that. So I just basically brain dumped my whole story, and I ended up with almost half a million words for my first draft, which is just way too many. My my contract was for eighty thousand words, and so uh, I finished the you know the draft, sent it off to the editors. And it was their job to whittle it down and trim the fat and cut out the stuff that was unnecessary and, you know, repetitive or anything like that. Um, but they kept it very much my writing. And um, I, I think it got down to about 210, 215,000 words. So, like, I think it's about 500 pages. So it's yeah. not a small book, as you, as you know. Yeah. Um, I like that. I must. It's, it's a cool factor, man. Mm. Yeah. And I so... Like yeah, it was just yeah something I really wanted to do and mm. Um, mm. and wanted to achieve, and I'm really proud yeah. that I persevered and did that. And yeah, but the main reason for it was like I, the way I can sum it up is I wanted to help people learn what I've learned without mm. going through what I've been through, and that could be people going through a similar situation to me or anyone who's going through any th- sort of adversity, which we all do. Um, so it's really yeah it was to like the thing that that gets me now are the messages I get from people who have read the book and they're saying oh my god I can't believe you know like um, some of the messages and how like I'm able to apply them to my own situation and um, you've given me this new way to look at life and there was even one or two people that wrote to me and said hey look I don't even know if I would be here anymore if I hadn't found your book and that's pretty heavy to read that but to know that there's the possibility of having that sort of an impact is is huge and so um, again it's you know it's not about me I wanted to tell my story vulnerably and openly so that others um, didn't feel so alone and they could connect and relate whereas you know, and and I even had a couple of negative reviews from people who are like they got through, you know, were reading through the first part of the book, and they're like, "Oh, it just sounds like you're bragging about, you know, all the chicks you've slept with and this and that." And I'm like, "Well, it it, it kind of is like that's what it was because first person present tense writing. I have to write from the mindset that I was yeah. at that time, yeah. Yeah. and I was a young dude traveling the world, that's single, it. living it up, having a good time, you know, like, um." And so I had to convey that to then show the growth that was able to come afterwards and to show how I was able to, you know, like, I guess, and also how that sort of a mentality that I had became, had such a negative impact after my accident. Mm. Uh, And so, yeah, I just, I wanted to, to be a very raw, real story because you get so many of these athlete biographies that are so vanilla because they're afraid of exposing themselves in, in ways that might get a negative reaction. And honestly, I wrote this and I'm like, I do not care. If someone reads Fuck it and yeah, doesn't man. like it or thinks a certain way about me because that's just me, this is my journey. You can't write a book that's going to, you know, please everyone. So yeah. as long as I know that I'm, you know, if, if I'm going to make a positive impact on some people and if by being open and, and 
sharing all of that uh, can help other people, then mm. that's awesome. You're owning yeah. the story, you're literally mm. owning your story. Yep. Um, it's what got me with that as well was how you, in the memorandum the at the beginning it was in memory of those lost friends and I couldn't help but think that that's why I asked a question and I was curious and it basically suggested what I thought is that yeah it really is a guidebook it's a handbook it's a tool it's a resource for those people that are having to go through mm. or are inevitably going through shit that no one else in their mind can understand or perceive and it's like hey let's not try compare but you're going through it but now here's this tool book here's this resource yeah and some of those names um took their own lives some of them you know were taken um through other other situations but none of the ones that that um took their own lives i i had no idea that they were struggling no idea at all and that's often the case you just don't even know um and even oftentimes it's the the person you least expect yeah. that, oh, that yeah. ends up going ahead and does it and it's so again that was sort of part of it for me is like if I can have any impact on that and and you know making someone believe and and know that it is okay to struggle and it's okay to not be okay and we have to be easy on ourselves in that way and because we are told you have to harden up and you got to you know push through everything and blah blah blah, but you got to rest sometimes. You got to take time for yourself and to to recover and to be able to understand what we're going through and you know find our feet again. Um, and yeah, there's just this toxic belief that yeah you, you, that you especially as men that we're not allowed to feel that sort of stuff. Um, so. That was the one, of the, yeah, one of the big driving factors behind it, and um, I appreciate yeah. it. It's 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 a it's an amazing book. I wish I had the physical with me because I could show it on the camera. And I was actually meant to call you to ask you to bring a copy for that reason. Yeah, but I thought of it on the way here. I forgot. Yeah, yeah. O- owning that is the title of the book, and I've we've kind of been saying it throughout the whole conversation. Yeah, um, and 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 what are we gonna like up on screen, like in in After Effects, just like. Here's the book, you know, <laughs> bing, right here, you know. There bing. you go, not to throw you on the deep end there, yeah. but editing. There you go, there's <laughs> the cue, bing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I won't, won't take too much of your, uh, much of your time, Brad, and um, yeah, as I said, just I really appreciate you taking the time for this and um, for this conversation. It's, yeah, deeply moving, and I think now, you know, you've gone through all that, you'll face this adversity and, and still are, hey, fuck, we all are. And in your situation, you are, as you've said at the beginning of this conversation, you're still going through your pains and having to deal through that. And, but you're on this process and I'm curious now and I've seen some of it, which is uh, what you're doing is amazing and it's now this next leap, as you just touched on, is now you in these speaking engagements and these talks and you've got that Aripa affiliation, which I think in itself is massive because what they're mm. all about is the, it's a nootropic, correct? Is that? Uh, yeah, and there's, um, you know, there's there's even an article came out the other day about um, potential like lack of evidence and things like that around it, but... You know they they've had neuroscientists work on it, and they've yeah. it is a you know their their focus as a brand is on mental health and brain health and um, Which is, yeah 
which you know for me it was just an amazing connection and and easy to yeah to to partner with a brand like that because i would never partner with anyone that you know i don't i don't believe in what they do or um and yeah and so love the motivational speaking again it's something i feel like i'm giving and i feel like i'm i'm sharing openly and i'm able to potentially help someone and um so again that's i feel really really good after those sorts of talks and um, love doing the brand partnership and creating some you know meaningful content um, in a situation where we've got social media which is full of so much toxic shit Fuck. Um, I just which you know, is contributing to this whole mess we're in massively yeah and that's massively. where I, I feel like if I can just be a small part yeah. in being the opposite of that and and um, having a positive voice on social media then um, you know that's it's another really cool thing that I've enjoying doing and um but in terms of like where i mentioned that turning point where i was like stop looking at what i can't do anymore and Mm. started looking at what can i do so those were some of the things that um, came into it but even just my own adventures and pushing myself and i've ended up getting into free diving and which people are like "You you can't even swim bro like what are you even free diving so and that was just because i was like okay what what can i do you know, what what experiences can I have that would be very similar for me than they would for everyone else? And initially I was like skydiving and scuba diving. And then the scuba dive doctor said no. And this is another really cool story that's in the book that I think has uh, got a cool message behind it where I was so set on going scuba diving. And this dive doctor said no. He's like, there's medical risk from nitrogen bubbles forming on your scar tissue on your spinal cord or some some I didn't even really listen I just heard him say medical risk and then but he said it was from breathing compressed gas underwater so I'm like okay so if I hold my breath then that eliminates that risk and he's you know obviously was like oh yeah you can't swim I'm like I'll figure that part out don't worry about that and um so then me and my I, I just started practicing holding my breath and uh, I had a uh, buddy, uh, Bob Sovin, another top pro wakeboarder, um, and he came to New Zealand and he and my buddy Jesse uh, got me in the swimming pool and flipped me over on my on my front and I was just holding my breath for a while and they walked me up and down a couple laps of the pool and um, within a few tries of, like before my accident I could hold my breath for maybe three and a half minutes and that that's was like... That's impressive, man. So I was like pushing myself then but not you know not regularly or anything um but then after the accident and when I first started trying to hold my breath again it only took three or four times for me to beat that record and the next thing I was getting like up around five minutes and my record now is five minutes and 45 seconds and um and look I haven't done it in in a little while like COVID came in you know stopped a lot there and then these health issues but uh, it was just something that 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 the doctor closing that door on my face, going, "Nut, you're not going scuba yeah. diving," and I was crushed, but only for a moment. And then I'm like, "Actually," Fuck and you. then I found free diving, which has given me so much more than mm-hmm. what just scuba diving would yeah. have done. It's given me progression again in a life where I completely lost progression. Um, I was trying to get my arm movement back, wasn't getting anywhere. I was so used to pushing myself every day as a pro wakeboarder and and crashing, you know, like I was used to failing. 
over and over again just to succeed. And I, 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 I was missing that and I felt lost without that. And so, you know, sometimes we're being, we think we, we know where we want to go in life. Um, but really those doors that close on us are sometimes leading us to the doors that are meant to open. Um, and my uh, friend of mine that I've connected with since my accident, uh, her name's Emma Carey. She uh, she had a skydiving accident. The parachute didn't open properly. Um, tandem skydiving uh, in Switzerland, and she hit the deck, Fuck. and she's walking again. Um, and it's one of those things, just miraculous. Uh, and. She, her and I both re- released a book around the same time, and so I read hers. And there's this really cool story in it that I that I really loved. It's called um, "The Girl Who Fell from the Sky," and um, it's about you know that same thing: the door closing on us and leading us where we were meant to go. It's almost like you know if we think of God or the universe or whatever the power that you believe, if we think of that as like the owner of a dog, and I'm the dog. And I really want, like, the, the, my owner has got this, like, chocolate chip cookie. And I really want to eat that chocolate chip cookie. But my owner knows that as a dog, I'm not supposed to eat chocolate. And it's actually really bad for you and it can kill you. But I don't know that. And so I just want that. I just want to eat it. But it knows what's better for me. And so, you know, obviously it doesn't let me eat it. And, and it's, you know, it's just kind of an analogy for... Um, having faith in the process and be, that we're being led where we're supposed to go. And I'm not a religious person, but um, that faith is similar to what a religious faith, w- faith would be. Yeah. And it's just going, no, I, I believe that if I do the things that I'm in control of and I work for what I want, then you know that thing that I want, it may come to me or it may not. If it doesn't come to me, then it's not meant for me. And it's leading me to, to the thing that is meant for me. And, and I've found that so, so powerful for just letting go of this control of trying to, you know, get everything that we think we want and feel like we're in complete control of, of our lives there. And um, that's just something that's, it's allowed me to just kind of, let go a little bit and just trust the process. Attitude, effort, action. Yep. I love it, brother. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, yeah, man, I can't wait to listen back to this. Yeah, my pleasure. There's, uh, yeah, there's a lot. And I think um, just to do the people, sh- to the people, they should definitely read your book, Owning It, by Brad Smealy, obviously. Um where can they find that and where can people just find more and even speaking engagements? Where's all that information? Yeah, so, I mean, most of it um, you can find through my social media, through my Instagram. It's just my first and last name, Brad Smaler, S-M-E-E-L-E. Which, Smaler, you know, is that how Well, it's a weird Dutch pronunciation, Smaler. but... Um, Smaley. Yeah. There's oh, a lot of people. No, no, yeah, everyone does. Um but no, and so yeah, social media, um, you know, in the link in the bio, I've got all the links for where you can get the book. But it should be at most cool. bookstores, especially off New Zealand, uh, across New Zealand and Australia. Great. Um, Paper Plus, Work Calls, all that. Um, it's on um, Kindle, uh, like there, there's a few different versions of the ebook. Um, awesome. So, however, you consume your ebooks, you could probably find it there. 
And um, yeah, and, and on top of that, like if you want to reach out for any reason, whether it is um, speaking engagements, you can mm-hmm. reach out to, uh, again, it's all there in my profile, but um, essential talent or celebrity speakers and um, and and yeah, would love to come and share my story. And um, But yeah, if, even if someone's struggling and they just want to reach out and have a, have a chat, um, I'll always make an effort to respond to the messages I get and um, and yeah I just I like to to be able to connect with people and um, if, if there's any way that I can help then I'll, I'll do my best to do so but mm. um, I think one thing that yeah as you're saying like reading the book that that was my way of just putting it all down and out there so it's accessible to anyone I'm loving it. It's, it's so vital. And as I said, it's almost like a tool book and a resource. And yeah, I mean, it's it's literally the motto and I, I so relate to it and live by that is you just got to fucking own it, whatever it is you're dealing with. Yeah. And to sum it up, the book is Sex, Drugs, Partying, Tragedy, Overcoming Adversity, Inspiration, Self-Help, all packed into one. Yeah, um, so it's a nice juicy read that um, yeah. It's funny, yeah. You get some of the ladies are like, "Oh yeah, I got to get that book." Like they love, love to get into the the, the juiciness of a you know of a real story. So yeah. amazing. Well, I'll have all the links and that in the um, show notes of this episode. But yeah, to you, Brad, I appreciate you, brother. Thank you for your service, ultimately. And yeah, let's keep in touch. I think this is just the start of a relationship man because what you've you know taught me and the impact you've had on me and in a short time I've well finally met you but just no one of your story it's yeah I can't really describe how much it's been for me so I thank you it's awesome my pleasure man thanks for having me on pleasure awesome cut cut oh shit I wasn't recording (laughs) fuck Thank you, everybody, for tuning into the podcast. I appreciate you. I thank you. And I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'd love to hear what came up for you, what stood out, what made you triggered, what made you squirm, what made you think deeply about how Brad's story is replicated and a reflection of your own personal story. How can you implement what Brad went through? And ultimately, I think for me, one of the biggest things that stood out for me in that conversation was in his healing process is how he had to take responsibility. Does this sound familiar to you? Is this something you think that you need to really lean into and step into and take ownership and responsibility in your life? Obviously, your circumstances hopefully aren't the same as Brad's, but we can take that vital lesson and how he's navigated and how he's implemented that process for himself and his healing. Ultimately, we got to own it. This life is short. This life is a blessing. And we didn't ask for this life. We just turned up on this life. So for that, I'll leave it. Allow yourself to ponder and reflect and listen back to the conversation because there is immense wisdom throughout and I really hope you can implement it ultimately. I thank you for taking the time. Appreciate you. I love you all. Speak soon.